We've all heard it said, when we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper, take a moment to examine yourself so that you don't eat in an unworthy manner. We're going through this series called Out of Context, looking at passages that are regularly ripped from their context. And 1 Corinthians 11 is one that doesn't normally make the top 10, but it should because we do not want to miss out on the depth and power of what Paul is communicating about communion. Hey friends, welcome to the teaching series. We're so glad you're listening. This podcast is the audio version of our highly visual video series that you can find on our website, walkingthetext.com or on our YouTube channel at Walking the Text. You know, the Bible can be difficult to understand. And that confusion typically happens when we read the Bible without understanding its context. That's why we create resources like this to help you understand the Bible in its original context so that you can learn, love, and live it out every day. We recently added Brad Nelson to the list of Brads here, and we are so excited to have him. And you get to hear from him in this episode today. We know that with a growing understanding of biblical context, you'll be reading the Bible with greater clarity and confidence than ever before. With that in mind, let's get started. If you've spent any amount of time following Jesus or any amount of time at church, at some point you have either participated or seen this ritual, the Lord's Supper, communion, or the Eucharist, depending on your tradition. And at some point in this meal, the minister, pastor, or priest will say something like, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And these are called the words of institution, and they come to us from 1 Corinthians 11. And this is a really unique passage because even though it comes from the writings of Paul, it's actually the earliest documented case that we have of the Christians using this supper, this Lord's Supper, as a part of their worship. And so it's a very unique passage to give us insight into how the first followers of Jesus were interacting with this meal. And generally, before Christians take this meal, the pastor or minister will say something along these lines. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And so this passage is going to get quoted all the time. And the question is, what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? And what does it look like to examine ourselves? And there are a couple of different explanations behind what that could mean. But by far the most common is essentially that before you take this meal, you need to ensure that your heart is right before God and that this is a meal that you don't eat flippantly. And there is nothing wrong with that, but as we're gonna see as we dive deeper into this text, Paul is talking about something far more specific that I think has sharper edges for what it means for us to be the kind of people who gather around this meal. And so in order to understand what Paul is doing, 
it's helpful to know a little bit about the context of the meal in an ancient culture. And so many of you have seen this picture before. It's Da Vinci's Last Supper, but this is not how Jesus and his disciples would have eaten the Last Supper. They would have been gathered around something more like this, which is called a triclinium. It's a three-sided table. It's U-shaped, and there would be pillows that would be on these elevated couches, and you would recline at the table and you would lean in on your left elbow and the food would be here in the center. And eating in the ancient world was very, very scripted. And so in a Greco-Roman culture, the evening meal was actually referred to as the daipnon. And the daipnon would be followed at some point after the meal by what was called a libation or a or drink offering. And then after that libation would be what was called symposium, uh, a time of entertainment. Uh, it could involve music, it could involve storytellers, it could involve uh, discussion, philosophical debate, but this was the pattern of ancient meals. And R. Allen Street wrote this incredible book called Subversive Meals, and he just says that the banquet was a well-established social institution in the Mediterranean region of the Roman Empire during the first century, and everyone attended banquets, whether of the elite or the peasant class. And so this actually included Jesus. Jesus was all the time feasting and at meals. In fact, one of the ways that Luke describes Jesus in Luke 7.34 is the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And what you'll find if you read through Luke's gospel is that Jesus is either at a meal, he's either on his way to a meal or leaving a meal or telling a story about a meal. It's like Jesus is constantly Eating. There's something about table fellowship that is at the heart of who Jesus is and what he's about. And this was deeply offensive to some of the religious culture around Jesus. They had a problem with the fact that Jesus would eat with basically anybody. And I love the way uh, Tim Chester says this in his book, A Meal with Jesus, he says, a central question of the Judaism of Jesus' day was, with whom can I eat? Present holiness and future expectation were bound up in this question. Doing lunch was doing theology. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't just come to announce the arrival of God's kingdom. Jesus actually embodied the arrival of God's kingdom through these meals that he shared with people. And what is so interesting to me is that the way Jesus ate with people, it wasn't just disruptive to this religious culture that he was a part of, it was also pretty disruptive in the Greco-Roman mindset, and it's important to understand why. So to appreciate that, um, I want to share with you this thought from Garrett Fagan, who is recently passed away, but one of the greatest scholars on the Roman Empire. And he just says that the ancient Roman social order was one of the most status-conscious and hierarchical social orders of all mankind's history. And so this social hierarchy was baked into the Roman worldview, and it was supported by law. And so you would see this show up in your world in all kinds of ways. One of those was how you dressed. 
By law, certain people were allowed to dress certain ways and other people were not. And if you dressed in a way that was above your status and you got found out, that was punishable by law because it was a, a form of ancient identity theft. You were pretending to be of a status that you weren't. And so you see that reflected in how people dressed. In the Greco-Roman world, if you wanted to go to the theater, well, where you sat in the theater depended on your status, where you fell within the social hierarchy. Obviously, those with a higher status got better seats. Those of a lower status got poorer seats. And then we see this also with the banquet in the Greco-Roman world. People of high status were seated at the highest places at the table. They received the best food. And then the further down the table you were, it was a reflection of your lower status. You might receive less food, lower quality food, but you knew as a Greco-Roman person when you got invited to a banquet exactly where you stood in the eyes of your society because of where you sat. Now, as Americans with modern sensibilities about equality and justice, we can actually find this way of being fairly offensive. And yet, when was the last time you got on a plane and you shuffled with the rest of the cattle back to coach past the people who were seated before you in first class, business class, priority boarding, veterans and those in the military. And I read an article a couple of years ago by USA Today that talked about the prevalence of air rage incidents. And one of the researchers was saying in this article that they believe that all of the air rage incidents we're seeing are directly connected to this experience of walking the social hierarchy. When you get on a plane last, you see exactly where you fall in the pecking order. And this is just one of the ways that we see uh, we're, we're still really Roman. This shows up in our world, but it also shows up in the lunchroom. I don't know if you had this experience, but I can tell you that when I was in school, I could tell you exactly where the cool kids sat. And not just the cool kids. I could tell you where the jocks sat, where the skaters sat, where the academic kids sat. Like you could walk into a lunchroom and you knew exactly where people were going to sit based on their status. And that's kind of funny. But friends, it wasn't too long ago in our country where you would see signs like this. And there was this message that just said, some people are allowed to sit in some places and others aren't. And where you sit at the table is a reflection of your status. And that is exactly what meals were like in the ancient world. And the reason that's so important is that when followers of Jesus adopted the way that Jesus ate and incorporated the Lord's Supper into their worship, they actually subverted the way that the Greco-Roman world used the meals. And here's what I mean. I want to share this quote with you from Alan Kreider. He just writes this, some participants in the banquet 
are poor. In their hunger, they are attracted to a religious gathering that provided real food. Many people are present who in the wider society are powerless and of no account and who will never have enough money or influence to be at a non-Christian banquet. Here in the Christian banquet, they have worth. Not only can they eat, they can also speak in the symposium he's referencing. In the symposium, they discover that they have gifts, they have voices, and worthwhile things to contribute. So what the Christians were doing is that they realized, no, 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 no. In the kingdom of God, the banquet, the meal, is not a place where you acquire status. It's a place where you assign status to those who lack it. Okay, so now with that backdrop, Let's look in on 1 Corinthians 11 and try to understand with that context what Paul is really getting at. And Brad mentioned this in the last episode that anytime you're trying to wrap your arms around the literary context of a passage, it is just incredibly helpful to take a look at these graphics that the Bible Project has created and their short videos that do an overview of each book of the Bible. And it's especially helpful for 1 Corinthians because what you see is that Paul has structured his letter to the church at Corinth around five major conflicts or five problems. And those problems show up in these kind of headings. You got chapters one through four, he's dealing with divisions, chapters five through seven, sexual immorality, chapters eight through 10, food offered to idols, chapters 11 through 14, the Christian gathering, what happens when they get together for worship, and then in chapters 15, the resurrection. But the passage that we're talking about that is so frequently taken out of context occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is specifically addressing the way the followers of Jesus are worshiping when they come together. And it's so crazy. In chapter 11, he's going to talk about the meal, the daipnon. And then in chapter 14, he's going to talk about the symposium, this time when people are sharing after the meal. So with that context, we see that Paul's talking about a Greco-Roman banquet, the way that the Christians have been using that to reflect Jesus's kingdom values. And then he says this to them. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And he's going to go on a few verses later and say, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And then in verse 33, he's going to say, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, and here's the key, wait for each other. See, what had happened, the church in Corinth had taken the meal, this meal of Jesus, this meal that announced God's kingdom, and they had perverted it 
back into a way of reflecting status and the divisions of their world. And Paul is like, no, you are missing the point. Friends, we eat in an unworthy manner when the body of Christ more readily reflects the divisions of its society than the unity of Christ's kingdom. And there is absolutely nothing wrong when we come together and we observe this meal and we remember Jesus's sacrifice for us and we announce his kingdom by participating in this meal. There's absolutely nothing wrong with pausing to inspect our hearts and to deal with our sin and make sure that anything that we need to confess and repent of, that we do that. But friends, just understand that in context, doing that as examining ourselves or eating in an unworthy manner, that's actually far more reflective of our hyper-individualistic Western culture than it is what Paul is actually addressing. Because what Paul is actually addressing is far more reflected in this question before we eat this meal. We need to just pause as a gathered body of believers who are announcing and embodying the arrival of God's kingdom. Who's missing from the table? Are are there people who belong here sharing this meal with us, but they're not here because they don't have the right skin color or they don't have the right ethnicity? Are, Are there people who aren't at the table because they're not in the right tax bracket? And we have a community, it's a great community, but folks who aren't of the same socioeconomic status, they just don't feel welcomed here. This isn't a place where they feel comfortable. Uh, are, Are there people who aren't at the table with us because we're on the outs with them? There's conflict in the church, there's division in the church, and so they're not eating with us. I mean, just even more personally, are are there ways in which we share the meal and there are certain people who aren't there because they don't share our same political views or social views and subtly our gathered body of Christ starts to reflect the divisions of our society more than it does the unity of Christ's kingdom. And this is the invitation to eat worthily to examine ourselves and to discern the body of Christ and to just ask this question, who's missing from this table? And in addition, there is all of this fascinating research coming to light that talks about the power and the significance of meals. Uh, This is from a woman named Anne Fischel, uh, and I read this in the Harvard Graduate School of Education. But She says that regular family dinners are associated with lower rates of depression and anxiety, substance abuse, eating disorders, tobacco use, early teenage pregnancy, and higher rates of resilience and higher self-esteem. Now, if you had asked me, hey, we have a real problem in our culture with anxiety, depression, substance abuse, teen pregnancy, what could we do to fix that? I I would feel so overwhelmed and paralyzed. I would be like, I I don't know. But what the research is demonstrating is something that Jesus 
intuitively new and left to us. And it's this idea that meals heal and not just families, but communities, churches. And is it any wonder that Jesus in his brilliance left us as a sign and symbol of his kingdom, this meal, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. So the question we've got to ask when we come to this table is who's missing? Because that is the context that Paul is driving at. The power of Jesus's meal to heal the divisions of our world. So friends, may you eat like Jesus. May you eat in a worthy manner. And may you walk out this text well in your life.